Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And so, in a way, you, you were the, the closest people or closest thing that Henry had to family at the end of his life. That's correct, yeah. And did he talk any time about his life or his childhood uh, with you or Nathan? No, he, he never talked anything. He never carried so-called dialogue or conversation with anybody, including us. The reason I asked Kiyoko Lerner if she knew anything about Henry Dogger's life is because understanding his past is key to understanding his art. Until the early 2000s, not much research had been done to try and figure out why some of his work was so violent and strange. For a long time, people just believed Henry Dogger was mad. Or worse, critics called him a pedophile. Some said he had the mind of a serial killer. For decades, Henry Dogger and his art were completely misunderstood. My name is Philippe Cohen-Solal. And you're listening to the third episode of Outsider, the amazing story of Henry Dogger. My two guests for this episode of Outsider are scholars who have researched Henry Dogger's life and published books on him. Michael Bonesteel was probably the first to ever start digging in Henry Dogger's life. My name is Michael Bonesteel. I wrote a book called um, Henry Dogger, Art and Selected Writings uh, back in 2000. It was the first definitive book on Dogger in America to really examine his work in depth. Most of my life I've been a newspaper editor, an arts, arts and entertainment uh, writer, an art critic, art reporter. I taught university level education for 14 years. And now I'm just a freelance writer. I'm semi-retired and enjoying my life. For this episode, I also wanted to reach out to Jim Elage, who wrote a very important biography of Henry Dogger, shedding new light on his life and who he might have been. My name is Jim Elage. I'm a retired English professor at a university's. Uh, I began my research on Henry Darger uh, in April of 2002. My biography of him was published 10 years later in July of 2012. In the meantime, I published other books, eight of them to be exact, uh, some collections of poetry, Uh, I began my writing career as a poet, but I spread out to other genres. And during that period, I also published three anthologies, all of them dealing with queer literature. A lot of artists have represented violence and war scenes. Some of them are among the most celebrated painters in art history. So I was curious to ask Michael Bonesteel why he thought Henry Dogger's work had been so criticized. 
I suspect that the major problem with just looking at Darger's artwork, not really understanding who he was, or even reading the stories that his artwork were based upon, one could one might assume that he might have been a pedophile because he was obsessed with children and drew them incessantly in both wonderfully glorious fantasy, childlike ways, as well as depicting them being strangled and uh, disemboweled and other horrific things. Now, people who would see this work might assume that the author, uh, the artist, held feelings that agreed with these these images, when in fact, Darger wasn't doing any more than, say, a novelist like Stephen King would do when Stephen King would write about monsters. It doesn't really mean that Stephen King was a monster, but because Darger was not understood in any, in any fashion, nobody knew anything about him, they projected their own fears, their own judgments, Upon him. It took critics quite a while to realize that Henry Darger's visual work was in fact an illustration of the story he wrote. Michael Bonesteel was one of the first to really try to read, at least part of, Henry Darger's 15,000-page novel, In the Realms of the Unreal. This story of a never-ending war between children and men is also the only way found to express his trauma. He was traumatized. And I think like many art brute artists, many outsider artists, they transform trauma into works of art. And this is precisely what Darger was doing. The children that were, were being disemboweled and being strangled and being molested physically, not sexually, but physically in his artwork. These children were projections of him, of his feelings about what he had suffered. He identified completely with these uh, child slaves, as he called them, in this world where adults were enslaving children. I'd like to start from the, from the beginning of Dara's life. Can you tell me about his parents and where his father immigrated from and what kind of family they were? Yes, his father was a German immigrant. He came from Meldorf, Germany in 1874. His brothers, Augustine and Charles, immigrated earlier, and evidently uh, he followed them a few years later. All three of the boys, and they were young men at the time, all three of them were tailors. Henry's father, whose name was also Henry Darger, uh, became an alcoholic, and that created a great deal of problems, of course, uh, in taking care of Henry. Uh, his mother's name was Rosa Bullman, and she was from Bell Center, Wisconsin. His mother died in childbirth in 1896. Uh, Henry would have been only four years old at the time. She gave birth to a little girl who um, was eventually adopted. As I was saying, Henry's father was uh, an alcoholic. He was also an older man by then. And he simply couldn't deal with having a newborn and a four-year-old son. And so he gave the little girl up for adoption. Henry never met her. Uh, he never knew if she had a name or what that name was. And it was something that bothered him for the rest of his life. He never really mentioned her except in the autobiography in which he does say that uh, he didn't, never knew her. And so it's a very sad point in his life.
The History of My Life by Henry Joseph Darger, born in the month of April, on the 12th, in the year of 1892, of what weekday I never knew, as I was never told, nor did I seek the information. Also, I do not remember the day my mother died, or who adopted my baby sister, as I was then too young, nor would my Uncle Charles tell me, or did not know either. The young Henry Dogger grew up with his father on West Madison Street, in what Jimmy Lage refers to in his biography as one of Chicago's most notorious vice zones. It was a very nasty, in every way imaginable, neighborhood. At the time, there were what were called vice districts in Chicago. And a vice district was simply where there were a lot of saloons, uh, a lot of bordellos, uh, a lot of gambling going on. A lot of joints where strip teases were held and what were called sex circuses. A sex circus was what we would consider live sex shows. West Madison Street was filled with homeless men, in particular men. There were a lot of male and female prostitutes. All the things that you would find in any vice district was there. One of the young men who um, has written about it called it a haven for bums, prostitutes, degenerates, and the rest of the scum of the earth. And then he also mentioned that it was full of homosexuals. Sociologist Clifford Shaw said that the boys who live in West Madison Street invariably came in contact with homosexuals. And that was usually through uh, what was called jack rolling at the time. And jack rolling is a process in which, it takes several forms, uh, in which a boy would wait uh, for a drunk to pass out and then go through his clothing to find money, whatever money he happened to have on it. Uh, that was one form. The other form was one in which boys, often with a group of other boys, would be bait and attract the attention of a gay man who was there in order to find a male prostitute. This boy would then lead the gay man into an alley or a burnt out building or someplace hidden And then as they were about to have sex, the other boys would jump out and uh, beat him up and take whatever money he had to have. He happened to have on him. And at the time, being gay was against the law. In Illinois, the penalty was one to 10 years in prison. And so the guy, the victim would just simply have to go home. He, there's nothing he could do about it. He had lost his money. He'd gotten beat up, probably, uh, and that was the end of that. Because Henry Dogger remained silent about all of this in his autobiography, Jim L.H. had to deduce that maybe, growing up in this context, Henry had witnessed abuse, and he might have also been subjected to it. 
It's also possible that, like many young boys in the neighborhood, he turned to prostitution, which could be the reason why, at eight years old, he got in trouble with the police. Henry was caught coming home late one night by the police. And years later, uh, Henry said in his autobiography that he, that he had been or he used to go and see a night watchman in a six-story building a short distance from where we lived. And it was on one of these trips back home from visiting this adult that he was caught by the police. He was taken by uh, the authorities from his father and put into what was called the Cook County Insane Asylum. At eight years old, Henry ended up in what is then called an asylum, but looks more like a prison. He stayed there for a month before he was sent to a Catholic institution, Our Lady of Mercy, where he was at least able to go to school. His father taught him to read from the newspaper. So Darger, when he first went to school, was actually promoted a grade because he, he already knew how to read. Uh, he's very intelligent. He was a small child, probably because of that. He, he was the prey of bullies and other children. Uh, and I think he had an unusual personality. That may have attracted other children's dislike of him. At the beginning of my first term at the Skinner School, I was good and studious, but not meaning any harm or wrong. I was a little too funny and made strange noises with my mouth, nose, and throat in my classrooms to the great annoyance of all the other boys and girls. And I thought they would think it funny and laugh or giggle, but they gave me saucy and hateful looks. Some said if I did not stop it, they'd gang up at me after school and gave me the dirtiest looks. I defied them. He did get into fights with other children. He threw some ashes in a little girl's eyes, and his father had to punish him for that. So... I think he was acting out. I think losing his mother, and of course, you know, back in the early 1900s, therapy was unknown. And any sort of care or treatment for uh, children who were, had experienced the loss of a parent, um, there, there was none. So we can only imagine that he was probably harboring a lot of uh, anxiety, a lot of, you know, shame for not having a mother anguish, missing that maternal element in his life. And also because I think we, we, we often find people who are gifted, either, either creatively or, or intellectually, and I think he was both, even under, quote, normal, unquote, circumstances, have a hard time sort of uh, dealing with the world uh, because they just, they, they just don't fit in quite with everybody else. Hawk, hawk, my friend. Cannon thunders are swelling. He stayed at this uh, mission of Our Lady of Mercy for about four years. Um, early in the mission's history, uh, it was under a little bit of suspicion. A little bit of an investigation took part. There was a, a, a newspaper report that said that, quote, 
months. The boys sleep in one dormitory without any night watch after 10.30 o'clock, and they learn more evil in that dormitory in one night than they do on the street in a week. And that was published in the Chicago Daily Tribune. There's a couple who were slightly younger than he, but he was among the youngest of the group. And the age went all the way up to 18. And so um, it's obvious, uh, I think, that given the report in the Chicago Tribune, that he was sexually abused there by probably older boys. Whether he acted out because of the loss of his mother or because of what was being done to him, Henry Dogger became a problem for the institution. They eventually asked his father to send him somewhere else. But before that, he was taken to the doctor's office. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I did not know it at the time. But now I know I was taken to the doctor to find out if I was really feeble-minded or crazy. He said nothing about that, especially in my presence. Had I known what was going to be done with me, I surely would have ran away again. I will say he said nothing about what my examination was for. But during a cold, windy, threatening late November day, I know not the day or date of the month, I was hustled into the Chicago and Alton Limited train and brought to some kind of home for feeble-minded children outside of and south of the small city of Lincoln, Illinois. Dr. Forrest, dial 118, please. Dr. Forrest, please dial 118. At 12 years old, Henry was taken to the Lincoln Asylum. He would remain there until he ran away five years later. In his medical records, the reason he was institutionalized was self-abuse, which at the time was a euphemism for masturbation. The reason why they sent him to an insane asylum was because at the time it was believed that men and boys had a certain amount of what they called vigor, which was simply what we might think of as sexual potency. They believed that the more sex a man engaged in, the more he lost his sexual potency. They believed the more Henry masturbated, the more his body would become overtaxed and would finally break down. They called this lost manhood. They believed that only a crazy man would masturbate to the point of losing his manhood because by not having this vigor, 
by destroying your body and being unable to replenish the vigor, you had feminized yourself. Lincoln Asylum was one of the worst asylums for its time. Every kind of child that just didn't fit into society were all kind of shipped and warehoused in these horrible, um, you know, I mean, they were all just completely bunched in together in one place. There were children with Down syndrome. There were schizophrenics. There were children who were simply juvenile delinquents who had broken the law. Children who were orphans. The daily life of the children and the men was very structured. Uh, meals were at a particular time, bedtime was at a specific time. At night during the winter, they played games, uh, musical instruments, they played basketball, they held dances. The younger children went to school. By the time Henry got there, he was too old to go to school. He was 12, and so he worked. And the older ones worked by mopping and sweeping and mowing the lawn and that sort of thing. In the summertime, some of them were sent to a farm that the asylum owned. And there they tended crops and took care of the uh, few cattle and sheep that the farm held. My stay there was for some good number of years and was uneventful but busy, except my schooling and interest in big summer and winter storms. Even though Henry Dogger remembers this time as uneventful, official documents tell a different story about the place. In 1908, while he lived there, the state government of Illinois started an investigation of the asylum after complaints from parents. It resulted in a report which leaves no doubt on the living conditions inside these walls. Henry called the asylum the house of a thousand troubles in his history of my life, and it certainly had that. I learned uh, in this report, which was several hundred pages long, that at the asylum, rats had chewed on some of the children. Some of the children were burned badly by bathwater being too hot. Some of the children were beaten. One boy's arm was ripped off when he got it caught in a clothes dryer. At the same time, a 52-year-old man who had what he thought of as sexual indiscretions, quote-unquote, castrated himself in order to stop those indiscretions. At the time, uh, many uh, physicians believed that the way to cure homosexuality was through castration, and that's obviously what that man was going through. Records also revealed that boys were raped. There was no number given, but simply that many of them had been. And as important as anything else, the investigation uncovered the fact that children were routinely choked 
at the asylum. And you have to remember that in many Darger's paintings, the children that he depicted are being choked by adults. We sigh for the child slaves, dread the pains of the new. Their raking sorrows are many, their joys are few. At 16, Henry decided to escape from the Lincoln Asylum. Now, the thing that really prompted him to escape was the death of his father, because he was quite upset when his father died. And it was, it was very shortly after that that he made his first attempt. He was found and kind of dragged on the back of a horse with a, with a rope back to the asylum. The second time he tried to escape, he actually only got so far and, and kind of gave up and turned himself back in and was sorted, I think, by the, by the police back there. And it was only on the third attempt that he made it finally back to Chicago. It took quite a while to, to get back, months. Um, he, he lived on a farm for a while. Uh, he, he traveled, uh, he, he walked the entire way. For the first time in his life, Henry could deeply and freely connect to nature. Later on, he would draw purple clouds and giant flowers in his artwork, inspired by this long journey back to Chicago. Since childhood, he had been fascinated by the weather. Storms, rain, thunder, snow, tornadoes are everywhere in his work. Sometimes as metaphors for feelings, sometimes in a very literal way. December 25th, Sunday, 1960. This is Christmas Day. Weather report 50-50. It is report of clear skies. True. But it got so much warmer than reported. Promise also for rain turning to snow did not come true. His fascination with the weather made him a complete academic expert about the weather because he studied it, um, he read about it, he had journals about it from making notes about what the weather was outside his room in Chicago. It would not be long after Henry reached Chicago and found a job as a janitor that he started making art. We know that he started writing The Realms of the Unreal sometime between 1910 and 1912. I think almost immediately after he started writing his, his realms, he began thinking about visual illustrations, visual models for the characters. My theory is that his first artwork was tracing images of soldiers and children who were going to be the prototypes for his characters in the realms. How many years has he spent writing the realms? Um, About 25 years. He started in 1910, he ended in 1939. So, yeah, it was a very long period. From 17 to 71 years old, Henry Dogger worked as a janitor in various hospitals of his neighborhood. And every night when he came home, he would make art. He would write. 
paint, trace, and collage incessantly. He made very little, you know, as a, as a, as a janitor, as a dishwasher, as a bandage roller, the different sorts of jobs he held at the hospital. It was a menial labor, and it was, you know, minimum pay for that, for that kind of work. But whatever he could do, he would spend on, on art supplies like paints, uh, pencils, carbon paper. I think maybe a lot of the coloring books he may have found in the trash. He found a lot of books that he traced from in the trash, magazines, newspapers. Um, a lot of it uh, he collected and, and it was free, so he utilized a lot of material. Sometimes it's hard to even imagine him sleeping a full night because he was, like, like those weather journals, he's, he's, he's making notations throughout the, throughout the night on different uh, uh, temperatures. Toward the end of his life, he, he was a hoarder and he collected all this stuff in his room and his, his bed was completely filled with portfolios and books and other detritus. He did not sleep on his bed, he slept on the chair that he sat in uh, by his uh, table. I suspect that most of the time he was just nodding off uh, in his chair and then waking up, doing some more work, doing some more reading, not notating the weather, but uh, it's not clear that he even slept full nights or got a lot of sleep. Uh, perhaps he didn't need a lot of sleep. In his autobiography, he talks about keeping bricks under his bed in case he might be attacked. So do you believe that art was a way for him to express his trauma? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was his way to not just express, but deal in some way with his trauma. Uh, we know, of course, that it takes more than that. It's unfortunate that he was never able, because of his own poverty, he lived in poverty all his life, but that he was never able to see a psychologist or get any kind of real therapy. But he was smart enough, clever enough, to put what he could, the way he could, into his uh, paintings and into his novels. There's two things that come across in his autobiography, which I think refer to this trauma. He doesn't state this, but it seems obvious to me. Uh, the first theme was that he was discarded by everyone important to him. He was either ignored or lied to or cheated or betrayed or left behind. Uh, that is one of the big, big things in the history of my life. The other uh, thing that happens time and time again is that he was filled with anger throughout his life from the very earliest times. And I think those two themes really are connected. He's angry because of all of the uh, rejection that he faced, of being discarded all the time. Um, it's just, uh, I tried to fill in those blanks uh, with my book. And in fact, that's what any biographer does, is to fill in the blanks, all those important things that happen for which there are no black and white records. In the next episode of Outsider, I will have the pleasure to discuss Henry Darger's art with Lisa Rehnquist, a professor of art history at the University of North Carolina, who just published a fascinating book on the theme of girlhood in Henry Darger's art. The Vivian girls are these little girls. They become that vehicle 
in Darger's story of that martyr, that saint, the self-sacrificing type, the, the virtuous type. He holds them to such a high esteem that to me there is a whole heritage and a whole history of stories about female saints that are transgressive and that could this possibly be a model for his girls. Outsider is a seven-part podcast series. It was created by Philippe Cohen-Solal, written by Clémentine Spiller, and produced by César Depouilly for Yabasta Records. Special thanks to Jeffrey Carey for reading excerpts from History of My Life by Henry Docker. If you enjoyed the music in this episode, you can listen to The Outsider Album by Philippe Cohen-Solal and Mike Lindsay. The album is inspired by the works of Henry Dogger. It's out now and streaming on all platforms. Hark this, the battle cry for thee. Go find the children, wherever they may be.